Hello, and welcome to the Era Without a Hero podcast. My name is David Wayne Nystrom. I am the author and narrator of the story. If this is your first time listening, you've missed the first chapter and prologue, and I would highly recommend going back as this is one long story. Um, in the previous chapter, though, to recap, we did meet Osmond, a young carpenter's apprentice. He works with his uncle in Castletown, but dreams of being a knight. We met King Daphnis Nohansen Hyrule, uh, King of Hyrule, King of Red Lions, as he's also known. Uh, we met the Queen Zelda and Princess Zelda. And yes, that can get a little confusing, but I will do my best to always make sure you know which one is which. And minor spoilers, they don't share a whole lot of scenes directly with each other, but we'll get to that later. Uh, in this chapter, though, um, this chapter is called The Tournament. Uh, in it, you're going to meet uh, another character named Sir Ralphine, who is based on Ralph from Oracle of Seasons. Or, sorry, Oracle of Ages. Um, they are not the same game, not even close. But I digress. Uh, you will meet him. He is very much based on that and even comes from Liberina. And that gets me to one point I want to talk about real quick. So as I was writing the story, I considered every possibility for what Hyrule would have looked like after Ocarina of Time, before the Wind Waker, um, as that's when the story takes place. In it, I looked at the other timelines, as was laid out officially in Hyrule Historia and then later revised in the Hyrule Encyclopedia, I looked at, okay, what kingdoms existed in the other timelines? Well, we know Termina is a, was an alternate universe or a parallel world. And the only other game on that timeline when I was writing this was Twilight Princess, which was just Hyrule. So I didn't need to do much looking there. However, on the downfall timeline, other kingdoms exist. Liberina and Holodrum, they're not named as parallel universes. They're not named as alternate worlds. So I took it to be potentially that they could have existed, plausibly existed within the world at that time um, as well. So one of the things that you'll see as we as as the story progresses and our characters spread out more into Hyrule and you see more of it is the concept of, hey, there's a big ocean around the edges of Hyrule, just like in Breath of the Wild. Um, only this time in my version, I had a, I built a kingdom city or a, a bayside city named, uh, I don't remember what I named it now off the top of my head. Kingdom Bay. <laughs> there you go. Uh, named Kingdom Bay and it's on the Northern coast of Hyrule. Anyways, it stood to reason in my head that Hyrule wanting to grow as a country and whatnot, established trade routes with foreign nations. So not just Hyrule and Gerudo, which in its some ways is its own nation, in some ways is it's not. It, they have a hairy relationship, and we'll get to that much later in the story. But kingdoms like Holodrum and Liberina, in theory, existed simultaneously as Hyrule. So I have characters that come from there. One of those is Saranfine. Uh, there's another character alluded to who spent time in Liberina, and we will get to that also much later. But 
let's get ahead of the story. This chapter, like I said, is focused on the build-up to the Swordsman Tournament. You're going to see Osmond a little bit more. You will get to hear the King's Speech. But there is a little mini-chapter at the start of this that is sure to plant all sorts of little theories in your heads. And that's what exactly what I am to do with it. So, without any further ado, here is Chapter 2 of The Arrow Without a Hero, called The Tournament. How much further is this place? Young soldier asked, peeking his head out of the side of the wagon. It depends, the driver responded with a shrug. He turned briefly to look back, but adjusted his scarf to keep the whipping sand from getting in his mouth. This is a pretty mild sandstorm, but if she gets worse... The soldier nodded and ducked back into the tent, then shook his face free of the sand that had built up around the chainmail he wore. An older soldier, nearing the retirement age, chuckled and pulled his own scarf up. Told you to buy one. They're far too expensive. I've got mouths to feed. Seems like you just got some sand soup. Hope it was worth it. The younger soldier rolled his eyes and glanced at their prisoner who was seated on the floor and cuffed the benches on either side. He wore a black hood over his head, with a scrappy burlap shirt and ordinary trousers for pants. His feet were bare and calloused from years of walking on the desert without shoes. And finally, the prisoner's hands were dark blue, with jagged nails that looked like they hadn't been cut in years. Don't stir at him long, kid. Why not? He can't do anything. The soldier chuckled and gestured towards the prisoner. This one is dangerous. Those chains ain't normal. They had to be blessed. Blessed? The wagon bounced along the road, and the chains that restrained the man rattled loudly, as if answering the question themselves. A few of the sages came out before we could even open the door to his cell. Said to be extra careful. Whatever they say, I'll follow. The young man shivered in his armor and looked away. They rode a while longer without talking, the noise from the worsening sandstone and the rocky road providing the monotonous soundtrack. When the road noise suddenly stopped, though, the two soldiers became aware of something being wrong. Stay here, 
The older soldier stood up and popped his head through an opening near the front of the wagon. He returned a moment later and brushed the sand from his goggles and face. His eyes narrowed, and his voice was quick and sharp. Get your blade on him. Anything happens, plunge it into his skull. Understand? The young soldier did as he was told and pulled his sword from its sheath, placing the tip against the back of the prisoner's head. The older soldier drew his sword and climbed out of the wagon fully. The wind howled outside the wagon. The young soldier fought his anxiousness and wiped his brow before reaffirming his grip on his sword. You are nervous, the prisoner said. His voice was deep and haunting, almost rumbling like an earthquake. What? It's okay. You can still serve a purpose in this world if you release me. Quiet, you... The prisoner breathed deeply. I am enjoying the fresh air, Hylian. Does this air not please you? I said quiet. You have a family. You mentioned mouths to feed, did you not? I'm holding a blade to your head. Be quiet, or I'll have to use it. Do it, then. The prisoner's head turned. And your king will have to suffer the pains his family has tried to keep secret. What? There was a sudden commotion from outside, followed by a heavy thud. Make your choice. The young soldier began to shake as he looked around. Reynolds! There was no answer. Make your choice, Hylian. The young soldier looked down at the prisoner and fell back a little. The prisoner had somehow turned all the way around without the soldiers noticing. He stumbled back onto the ground as the prisoner stood up and extended his palms outward. Release me or kill me. The soldier firmed his grip on his sword and thrust it forward. He watched the blade pierce flesh but when he raised his eyes, he fell back again. The blade had not gone through the prisoner as he'd intended. Instead, Reynolds, the older soldier, sat on the bench where he had been during the journey with the younger man's blade extending from his chest. What? Pity that your family will now have to suffer your loss as well. The prisoner's voice came from the back of the wagon. He raised his hand and snapped his fingers and vanished. The young soldier collapsed in the back of the wagon with his head twisted around and the last vision being of the prisoner wandering away into the raging dust storm. The cheers settled down as Daphnis stepped up to the podium. He wrung his hands together for a moment after he set his speech down on the stand and then let out a contented sigh. He lifted his eyes over the crowd and smiled. 
Thank you, Lord Sajese, for that wonderful introduction. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, friends from far and near, honored guests and distinguished delegates. I happily welcome you all to this joyous occasion. He paused a moment to let a small wave of applause flow through the crowd. Today, we mark the beginning of a celebration that serves to remind us of our enslavement, our liberation, and the restoration of our great kingdom. When the era following the Dark One's defeat began, it was immediately called the Era of the Great Rebuilding. Seventy years later, my mother passed away, and the crown was handed down to me. I knew then that I would likely still be the ruler of Hyrule when this day would come. Now, it might sound trivial, thinking that a celebration would weigh on a king so, but considering that we are living in the longest period of peace our kingdom has ever known, every year is one that allows us to celebrate more and more. The burden of this day has caused me many sleepless nights, and I cannot express my gratitude to those of you who helped to put it together nearly enough. Hyrule rose from the ashes because of your forefathers, and she continues to thrive because of you. A roar went up from the crowd, and Daphne smiled as he prepared to continue. One of the things that caused me much grief about today was this very speech. I couldn't think of the words that could describe what this occasion means to us all, and then it finally came to me. This festival is not about speeches. It's not about royalty, it's not about the food, it's not even about our history. It's about us. Our people, our brothers and sisters, friends and relatives, far and wide, all of you who have been a part of this event this year and many past. It's about the people who have made this kingdom great and are continuing to do so every day. I share many of the same memories that you do from this festival, and I'd like to share another. Tonight, my family and I will not be eating from our podium, separate and higher than you, nor will the sages or our honored guests. We will be joining you. This festival is about people coming together and making Hyrule great. So that's just what we'll be doing. Let us feast! The cheers and celebration were deafening. Guards scrambled about to make a path for the king and the others to come down to the ground level. Within minutes, the bounty of food was being scrambled out from the nearby taverns and down from the castle. Food from every corner of Hyrule was laid across every table imaginable. Drinks were poured and sloshed together around in goblets of silver, brass, gold, and wood. Every man and woman had their heart filled with joy. The royal family and the sages made good on the king's speech, feasting and celebrating with the crowd. The massive sage of fire, Goron, took up an entire table and feasted on a boar with several soldiers. The Kokiri sage of wind and Zora sage of earth 
played their instruments in one corner, surrounded by singing men and women. Somewhere in the crowd, Osman made his way through and found Aldwin. After sharing a few drinks together, they discussed the tournament in the morning. Do you think Sir Alphine would give me a few pointers? Aldwin laughed as he finished off an ale. If you will go find him in this chaos, be my guest. Oh, come on, Aldi. You want to pick his brain just as much. Besides, this could get you close to one of the sages. I thought I was saying I'm hanging out near... Uh. A heavyset merchant stumbled backwards, dumping his ale all over Osmond. Aldwin smiled and held his mug underneath Osmond's dripping face. As the merchant turned around, Aldwin shoved the mug into his hands and gave a celebratory hurrah. The man cheered as though nothing had happened, poured the Osmond-filtered beer down his gullet, then cheered again and waddled off. Yes, I'm sure Seraphine would like to talk with you, sir smells like ale. Osmond shook his shaggy brown hair out as best he could and frowned at Aldwin as he got up to leave. I'll see you in the morning. Oz, remember there's a designated training area for contestants. Stop by my house on the way. I've got something special for you. Osmond gave his friend a thumbs up, then departed the table. He waded through a sea of bodies, dodging other hapless drunks along the way. Then, just as the crowd began to thin near one of the edges of the square, he saw a pointed blue hat that could only belong to one man. Sir Ralphine! An armored soldier smiled and extended a hand. I saw you fight a few years ago, and then decided that I was going to become a soldier. Thank you. No thanks needed, my good man. Ralphine smiled, his perfect teeth shining in the lights. It is an honor to do what I do, but I am only blessed because of the great soldiers such as yourself. Osman stood frozen for a moment. He swallowed hard, then mustered all the courage he could before marching over to the man. Hello, sir. My name is Osmond. Seraphine turned and smiled at Osmond. He pulled the brim of his hat up just a little, and his eyes glimmered in the same way his smile did. A part of his slick black hair hung down over one eye, and he brushed it back with one hand as he extended his other. Osmond, an honor to meet you. A fan of mine, I assume? Y yes, my lord. I I've seen you fight every year. And it's inspired me to take up a sword myself, you see. I, I've even entered the, the the tournament tomorrow. A rival blade inspired by mine? His cheeks flushed with color and his smile grew. Lad, you are an inspiration to myself. Should our blades meet in the arena tomorrow, it will be an honor to see what skills you possess. Know that I will not hold back, though. Osmond was beaming and he eagerly shook Rolfine's hand. Of course, my lord, nor will I. Rolfine gave a small laugh, then leaned in with his other hand, now on Osmond's shoulder. A word of advice. Don't rush through the time trials. Think first. Predict. Don't react. If you can anticipate where the next target will come from, your time will be faster than others by a solid ten seconds. 
After a quick pat on the shoulder, Rafine winked and turned back to the group of soldiers he was with. They were mid-song, and he seamlessly joined back in, hoisting a cup from the table and clashing it with the others. Osman moved away slowly, his face beaming with joy and his heart overflowing with excitement. He practically floated on air as he continued his journey back towards his house. The constant dodging of drunks and partygoers didn't even faze him. At the end of the square, where the streets began to form again, he finally felt himself come down a little. The street was still crowded, however, nothing like the square. There were a few soldiers patrolling, a few families that arrived late, and finally a strange man cloaked in black. The man, whose face was hidden, was leaned up against the corner of a building, simply watching the festivities. Osman took note of the large scabbard on the man's hip and the golden hilt that extended out of it. Sir, are you here for the swordsman tournament tomorrow? The man's head shifted towards Osman, but his face remained cloaked in shadow. Yes, I am actually. The man's voice was raspy, as though he'd gone some time without a drink. It was also deep and rumbly. He was a strong man, Osman could tell, and one that was likely from one of the mountainous regions in the south or west. If you still need to sign up, I believe the tent is open until dawn. It's just west of here, just outside the Coliseum. Thank you. The man bowed, then began walking towards the celebration. Osman watched as the man was swallowed up by the party, then continued on his way home. The man gave him a strange sensation that he couldn't quite place, and it made him feel uneasy as the streets grew darker and quieter. When he arrived back at his uncle's shop, though, he went around back, climbed the stairs to the second floor, and made for his bed near the window. He wound the alarm clock in the windowsill, changed his clothes, and laid down. With a heavy sigh, a beaming grin, and the knowledge that he would be competing in the morning, he fell asleep. Alduin, just promise me you'll make them look good. Osmond stood in the doorway to his friend and mentor's office, staring at the man in the mirror that he hardly recognized. A weathered green tunic that fit him perfectly, a sturdy shield that fit easily onto his arm, and a perfectly weighted sword. These were the surprises that Alduin had alluded to at the feast the night prior. A tunic is a hand-me-down. If you're ever an actual knight, they'll issue you one very similar. The shield I had custom-made by a legendary backsmith near Kakriko City. He was an old friend of mine who had owed me a favor. And the sword... He trailed off with a wispy grin growing on his face. Well, that sword is an artifact that I came upon a few years ago during an expedition out near Lake Hylia. There were several like it. But for some reason, this one bore no rust on it like the others. Some of the documents found with it suggested it had some sort of spell cast on it to keep it from wearing out. Imagine that. Osmond's eyes shined brightly as he gazed at his reflection in the mirror. He felt an overwhelming eagerness that nearly made him sick. Come on now, 
can't start at it all day. Aldwin clicked his cane on the floor and began making his way over to the door. Aldwin. Osman turned slowly, his eyes puffed up as he fought to hold back his tears. Thank you. A soft smile and nod of his head was all the acknowledgement Aldwin could manage. Osmond, as much of a pupil as he was, seemed more like a son at times. Osmond's parents had died many years ago, and Aldwin had seen the fire in the boy's eyes that told him everything he needed to know. It was a fire similar to the one that had once illuminated his own son's eyes. The part of his past that not even Osmond knew about. As they hurried down the street towards the Colosseum, Osmond told Alduin all about his encounter with the great Sir Raphine. Interesting advice. I suppose he's right, Alduin said, one hand on his chin. Of course he's right. But be prepared to abandon that, though. If he's handing out advice like that, I wonder if it's because he sees you as an easy target. Osmond blew the thought off with a burst of air from his lips. Just be wary of your competition, is all. Yeah, like that strange man in the cloak. Strange man in a cloak? After I met Seraphine, there was this guy wearing a solid black cloak. It was just outside the square. He had a sword that had a golden hilt. So I asked him if he was here for the tournament, and pointed in the direction of the Coliseum. I see. What? Should I have not? No, no. You did all right. Still, that's just what I mean. You're far too trusting. Just be vigilant is all I'm advising. Always the teacher. Osman laughed as he rolled his eyes. Precisely. A few minutes later, they turned down the main street that cut from the older district of Castletown to one of the newer sections. At the far end of the street stood the high stone pillars and arches of Hyrule Coliseum. There were five floors built up from the ground, with two more sunk into the earth. Along the top were crenels on which alternating Hylian royal crests and triforces were etched. High archways stretched across the pillars that extended from the ground all the way up. Between the monolith pillars were statues that stood below the stands for passers-by to enjoy. Each statue depicted great moments in Hyrule's history but none stood larger and more iconic than that of the hero of time. Sitting about ten yards away from the spectator's entrance, the statue depicted the dark Lord Ganondorf laying under one of the hero's feet. With the legendary master sword held high above him, the image was one that inspired every young boy that came to see it. Families would flock to the statue in times of trouble, Others would come to celebrate their successes at its base while striking the hero's pose themselves. Some of the older generations would simply lay flowers at the statue's base as a sort of prayer offering. Osmond had been a part of two of those ceremonies. When he'd first come to Castletown after his parents' deaths, he had tried running away. Without knowing where he was going, he managed to find his way to the statue and spent the entire night just staring up at it. It had brought him peace, strength, and was likely the final straw in pushing him to want to be a swordsman. Every year, on the anniversary of their death, he'd brought a single white lily and laid it at the statue's feet. The final ceremony, the one of celebration, 
it specifically reserved for himself when he could be considered a true swordsman. I'm going to do it, Aldwin. Aldwin paused and looked back as Osmond had stopped. He was staring up at the statue, eyes full of hope and pride. Yes, I'm sure you will. They made their way into the registration tent and were checked in by a woman with an unexpectedly sour attitude. Beyond the desk where she was perched, a narrow and covered passageway led around to a sort of staging area. Coaches and their swordsmen were talking strategy or making final preparations. There were about 30 competitors, with only 15 coaches. Older and more experienced competitors, like Sir Ralph Ayn, stopped using coaches eventually. It cost more rupees to register alone, but the payout was far more rewarding. Osmond thought about going and thanking Sir Ralph Ayn for the advice from the night before, but Aldwin's suggestion about it being a trick made him second-guess it. Instead, he stayed close and followed Aldwin to a corner of the tent, and they sat down across from each other on benches. Are you ready? Osmond gave a firm nod. I'm very proud that you've made it this far. I haven't done anything yet, though. Osmond wrinkled his face. Nonsense. I wouldn't have entered you if you had done nothing. You took your first step into this arena when you first asked me to train you. When you went against your uncle's wishes and picked up your first blade. When your parents perished and you fought off the wolves. Osmond shrunk. You are embracing your destiny. And I am honored to have been part of it. Thank you, Aldwin. Osmond muttered with his head hung low. Aldwin stood up and placed a hand on Osmond's armored shoulder. He gave it a reassuring squeeze. They stayed that way for a moment. Aldwin closed his eyes and said a silent prayer as Osmond did the same. There was no actual bloodshed in the tournament, at least not intentional. However, the event was exhilarating for the spectators nonetheless, and the competitors usually made for good entertainers. There was one competitor from Kakariko City that had been a trained actor, but took up sword fighting as a career after a critic had accused him of not knowing how to wield a blade believably. The actor challenged the critic to a duel and won easily. The critic then spent months trying to blame it on bad lighting or a cursed eye or any number of things before conceding that he'd made a mistake. Tarnell of Kakariko! A young page yelled from the entrance to the tent. As a bearded and hefty man waddled over to the boy, Osman took a hard look around at his competition. Sir Ralphine was polishing his sword hilt near the entrance. A few, more green swordsmen, were huddled with their coach getting last-minute pointers. A few knights, with more than the tournament on their mind, focused on their appearances, with the hopes of winning over the crowd more than the obstacles. Some others were taking stock of themselves, preparing and taking the impending event more seriously. Osmond felt a little out of place as he caught his appearance in a nearby mirror. Almost all the men had beards, or at least stubble, and they were brawny, tall, and even the vain ones represented a part of life that Osmond had not yet experienced. Nervous? Osmond nearly jumped when Sir Alphine's voice broke his concentration. Yes, sir, a little. He hopped to his feet and straightened himself. 
Forgive me. I should have approached you from where you could see me. So Ralphine bowed. The boar needs to be more aware of his surroundings. Apologize yourself, Horseman. Alduin thunked his cane on Osmond's shin. A valid point, sir. Uh, Ralphine raised an eyebrow. Alduin. Just Alduin. Never gained a title, I'm afraid. The two men shook hands. Did you train the lad? I did. I was trained here in Castletown some thirty years ago. Then I had to withdraw on account of an ankle injury, and it's haunted me ever since. Thirty years ago, you say? You wouldn't happen to know Lord Liam of the Southern Hills, would you? Aldwin's face strained of color, and his eyes shifted nervously. I, um, yes. He was my sparring partner for several years, in fact. Really? Fancy that. He trained me during his campaign across Laboona about ten years ago. Quite the attitude, but a damn fine instructor. I'm surprised he took on another pupil. When I last spoke with him, his days of instruction were over. Of course, that was nearly thirty years ago itself. Aldwin's eyes misted over a bit. Sir Ralphine of Laboona! Ralphine turned and acknowledged the young boy, then turned to Osmond. He extended his hand, and Osmond took it firmly, and they shook. Remember the advice I gave you, lad. Relax, anticipate, and you'll do all right. Seems like you've got a great coach, too. I hope to see you in the next round. With that, he spun around and left the tent, his navy cape fluttering in the breeze. Osmond stood in shock for a moment before something finally broke his concentration. The man in the dark hood from the previous night was seated in the corner. Some of the competitors had moved about, making it easy to see the solitary man, and as Aldwin gave Osmond instructions, he couldn't help but feel that strange and ominous sensation that he'd felt before after encountering the man in the street. Are you listening? I'm sorry, Aldwin. It's just I... Osmond of Castletown! Any further coaching would have to wait. Osmond was whisked out of the tent in seconds and led to the opening gates of the arena. As he left the tent, he noticed that the man in the dark cloak had yet to move.